Welcome to New England Take, WKXL 1450 AM, 103.9 FM Concord, 101.9 FM Manchester, and nhtalkradio.com. I'm your host, AJ Kierstead. Be sure to check out nhtalkradio.com to get all the back episodes of the show. So well subscribe to the New England Take on all your fav- favorite podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Spotify, all the places. I have a really interesting show lined up for today. We're going to be discussing uh, bail reform law in New Hampshire that uh, went into effect uh, a couple years ago, and there's a chance of it being uh, taken out of commission here in the upcoming uh, New Hampshire congressional uh, uh, hearings and such. So I, I'm excited to be joined by, once again, Professor of Law from UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law, Buzz Schur. He w- also won his election to the Portsmouth, New Hampshire Police Commission, so we haven't talked to him on the show since then. So congratulations on that, Buzz. Thank you. Also have Ross Conley, the Deputy State Director for Americans for Prosperity, for, which is in New Hampshire. Uh, welcome to the show, Ross. Thanks for having me, AJ. So you guys are both on uh, different sides of the political spectrum, which is really – I was kind of expecting Buzz to be trolling me a little bit when he said uh, Americans for Prosperity was supporting what uh, – because, Buzz, did you write the original legislation or were you just a part of it? I wrote the original legislation, yeah. And Buzz is very openly Democrat on, on the left side of the aisle, and is, some of his uh, political leanings are definitely follow the lines on that, but he's very open to um, uh, judicial reform and protecting people who have are in, entering the legal system, um, which kind of hits a, media, a middle ground where a more libertarian organization, more on the right, like Americans for Prosperity, supports. So I'm really excited to dive into this. Uh, before we get into that, let's exi- let's talk about the existing legislation that everyone has been following. Buzz, uh, what when did that go into place, and what does it cover? Uh, I think it went into place in 2018 uh, there uh, and I'll come back to what it originally said. And there've been two, well, I'll come back to, to where we are now in a second. Yeah. There were, it, it implemented a system where uh, it expanded the number of people who could be held pretrial without bail. Prior to that, it was a very small group of people, but it expanded it to all crimes um, it class A misdemeanors as well as felonies, uh, and it 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 put in place a uh, uh, a mandate that uh, unless uh, the prosecution could prove an individual was clearly and convincingly dangerous or a risk of flight, they could uh, they 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 were entitled to personal recognizance bail. It and it effectively said it. It actually out loud said, "You cannot hold somebody in jail simply because they don't have the money to meet bail." What had been going on in the past is people would be uh, held in jail on two hundred fifty dollars bail or a thousand dollars bail. Bail of that kind, when a judge sets bail of that kind in the past, it wasn't because they thought the person was dangerous. They, the judge just kind of had an informal schedule. Well, it's this kind of charge. I always set $1,000. This kind of charge, I set 250 But what happened is you had a lot of people in jail, not because they were dangerous or they are a risk of flight, but because they just couldn't afford the bail. And uh, that was the genesis of um, 
of bail reform. And, and bail ultimately is to make sure you show up to court, correct? Isn't that like the underlying yeah. rationale for having it? Historically, that is the underlying rationale. Over time, there has been added the goal of keeping people who are clearly and convincingly dangerous off the street pending trial, you know, for very serious crimes. Uh, but um, yes, that has been the goal. So uh, that was the original Bail Reform Act, and and it had a powerful effect. Um, it um, I I did a, a, a brief quasi-scientific survey I, 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 uh, from information uh, given to me by the Hillsborough County House of Corrections, I looked at how many people in the Hillsborough County Jail were being held pre-trial on bail of $1,000 or less uh, in the year before bail reform went into effect. And there was 100, over 150 people. I then looked at a month after bail reform went into effect, I looked, I got those same numbers, that is one exactly one year after the original survey, and there were six people in Hillsborough County Jail. So the effect of bail reform, it emptied many jails. Hillsborough County closed down a wing. And interestingly, from 2018 to 2020, the first two years of before bail reform was in effect, before the pandemic really hit, which kind of skewed numbers in ways we still are trying to understand. But from 2018 to 2020, crime rate in New Hampshire went down. So uh, it, you know, this bail reform was not did not produce a crime wave. Uh, now, there were, uh, uh, as part of the legislation, uh, the original bail reform legislation, there was put in place a bail commission to review after a year in, in effect, to review how things were going and to make what we expected would be some tweaks. You know, no legislation, in spite of the fact I may have written it, no legislation is perfect. Um, and, you know, every legislation needs tweaks. And rather than have a kind of screwed up legislation that's not quite working as intended, uh, we decided to build in proactively. Let's take a look at it in a year and make some changes. And so some changes were made the next year. And then the year following, some more changes were made. And these were at bail commissions, members of which were prosecutors, police officers, police chiefs, uh, the public defender program, the ACLU, uh, four legislators. So it was a really, uh, all the stakeholders were involved. And um, that's where we are today. Uh, and before we dive into like what the current state of it is, um, Ross, I mean, I guess in general, what really stands out to me that especially for Americans for Prosperity might be interested in is the fact that a, it gets people out of the the system in general and able to live their lives and be also the cost of incarceration for the state. And those must be two big priorities for your organization. Yeah, I'll say we're, we're very closely aligned. We worked with Buzz back in 2018 on the original bill. Uh, same with the former Senator Dan, Dan Feltis. Um, amongst a, a large coalition of groups across the aisle, uh, including the ACLU. <clears throat> and our, our, our main position was we, we want to get away from criminalizing poverty. 
And as Buzz mentioned, before bail reform, a lot of people were being held simply because they couldn't afford to pay that bail. So uh, we've seen a dramatic shift in a, in, a, in a much more positive way to protecting due process rights for granite staters and getting rid of criminalizing par- poverty. We view it as this is a smart on crime approach that's soft on taxpayers. And, uh, you know, SB 92, the bill that's coming up uh, in the coming months or next week, it comes to the floor. That that bill flips that on its head. And instead, we we start to ignore due process rights again and go back to a, a system of criminalizing poverty. If so, a big a big issue with people with especially this is well known, the mass incarceration problem we have in this country. And we, we send everyone to prison for a lot of different things and like marijuana and such and small things where cash bail basically gets people out of the, into the system. Um it, it is really destructive to people's lives. And I, I would imagine, I don't know, we, either one of you can touch on this, but I'd imagine getting rid of cash bail and allowing people to continue to work while they're waiting for their actual uh, court date must must make a, must must really assist with the reduction of uh, crime in the, in the state. It makes a huge difference. There's uh, several studies out there um, that uh, make it clear that if you spend as little as three days in jail pre-trial, that can have really negative consequences. Lose your job, lose your apartment, uh, it make difficult uh, housing for your family, not just yourself. Um, and it makes it hard to get another job. Uh, so yeah, and you know, just this cascade of effects, even as little as three days in jail, put aside, Put aside what it does to an individual. Uh, I, you know, as, as you know, AJ, I worked as a public defender for 13 years, and it was really devastating on individuals psychologically to spend time in jail pre-trial. It made it harder to mount a good defense, um, and um, if it, partly it's harder to to get in touch with witnesses. It makes it harder for the defendant to keep a positive attitude. You know, people who've been in jail for six months before they go to trial, pre-trial, they don't don't make as good witnesses. They're defeated. And, you know, one of the most negative effects is it encourages people to plead guilty to crimes that they didn't commit just so they'd stay out of jail. Uh, so, or they get out of jail, uh, and that's a well-documented effect. Um, I'm gonna—I can't afford to lose my job, or I'll lose, you know, my wife will leave me, or my partner will leave me, or I'll never see my kids again if I if I end up being incarcerated. So I'm just gonna plead guilty at arraignment, or you know, within a week or two or three, uh, so I can get back and keep my life together, even though I didn't do this. Yeah, that's a big thing that a lot of people don't consider or real. Actually, it's more people don't realize is the way that the the criminal justice system works, and it, it's people can consider that when it comes to like large scale, like the corporation decided to say we're just gonna plead guilty, we're just gonna cash out on the civil suit, we're just gonna pay for it to go away. Um, 
poor poor individuals don't have the money to do that and they don't have the money to pay for the lawyers to go through maybe they're over they don't realize what the state can offer them for attorneys if they don't have the income um, it, it's a really messy situation not to mention the social stigma and the personal just not liking yourself that I'm in jail and this is my life now it, there's there's um the the origins of uh our collective effort the group uh of, of people who uh came together on original bail form was uh work um i did with uh one of the origins is work i did with the aclu um uh and their legal directors he'll be sinette uh, prior to 2018 on debtors prisons yeah we found in uh, New Hampshire that uh, an inordinate number of judges, when somebody didn't pay their fine, they would call them into court and they'd say, can you pay your all your, your fine today? This is like six months after and they still hadn't paid their fine. Can you pay your whole fine today? No. All right, we're sending you to jail for uh, at, at the rate, uh, you'll pay your fine off at $50 a day. Um, with, and they got no due process at all they didn't get a lawyer they didn't get notice going to the hearing what the hearing was going to be about and we had transcripts of many transcripts of hearings that lasted less than two minutes um and we found you know we did a a lengthy report on debtors prisons and uh and that you know there was a lot of receptivity in the court system, interestingly, but in the legislature. And we, through changing court rules and through changing um, uh, some statutes, uh, we got rid of debtors' prisons, essentially, in New Hampshire. The most important thing we learned from that, other than accomplishing what we accomplished, was the legislation we put in place was passed by unanimous consent in the House of Representatives, the New Hampshire House of Representatives and the New Hampshire Senate. There was overwhelming support for uh, the kind of thing Ross was talking about, you know, not criminalizing poverty, not just putting people in jail, even when they can't, just because they can't afford to pay a fine. And so that made us think again well, what other areas are there where poverty is being criminalized? And, and that's, that's what gave Ray, rise to uh, uh, bail reform. Now, what's the deal with the legislation that's been put up for, it's gonna be actually on the floor on, the, on January 5th, I believe you said. Uh, um, on Tuesday. Yeah, what's gonna or, be, uh, what Tuesday, brought this about? Wednesday, I think it is. Wednesday, yeah. Though we had two com- bail commissions uh, with all the stakeholders involved, you know, superintendents were involved. And by the way, uh, before I get to it, all the super the superintendents of the ten county jails in New Hampshire, where the huge majority of people do their pretrial time if they are in jail, they were unanimously in support of the original bail reform act. Hmm. Um, so. Um, the new legislation, um, it identifies 13 crimes, some of them misdemeanors, some of them felonies, where if you're charged with that crime, you're automatically arrested. Unlike previously, you don't go in front of a bail commissioner. 
you can be held up for up to 36 hours, excluding holidays and weekends, um, uh, before you have an initial hearing and arraignment on your charge. And at that hearing, the prosecution can, they don't have to call witnesses to establish that you know, you're, you're clear and convincingly dangerous. They can just make what's called an offer of proof. They can just articulate just with their words, with no witnesses, why they think the person is dangerous. Uh, the defendant can have a lawyer, but if the defense counsel wants witnesses, which very most often you do at these hearings because a lot is at stake, you know, this is the second most important hearing an individual goes through other than trial or their uh, plea, uh, offering up of a plea. Um, if you want witnesses, then it's then there's another hearing. But at that point, the burden of proof shifts to the defendant. Once the judge makes a finding, well, based on what the prosecutor told me, not through witnesses, just based on what the prosecutor told me, I'm going to find that he's going to be held. You then get another hearing with actual witnesses. They have to call witnesses to prove it. And at that hearing, the defendant has to establish he's not dangerous by clear and convincing evidence. The, the, it's, you know, he's got to prove he's not dangerous. He's got to prove a negative, uh, which is a profoundly different uh, than the way things have been going. And it, it really, I think Ross put it well, it turns due process on its head. I mean, just from the most apathetic financial look at it, this costs the state a ridiculous amount of money and time they just don't have. I mean, this doesn't make a lot of sense on the face of it. I mean, go to you, Ross. I mean, do you see I mean, what would be their rationale for going to to propose something like this? I mean, <clears throat> there's been a lot of fear mongering. Uh, for sure, especially in, in some areas of, of Manchester with crimes of people being released after a violent crime. But as, as Bob Buzz pointed out, the, in the, the current law, you, they have the, the ability to, if, if somebody is a danger to themselves or to a community, that, and they can prove that through clear, clear and convincing evidence, then they can be held uh, pre-trial. But uh, what this really does, which is really dramatic, which is what Buzz was saying, our entire legal foundation is built upon the idea of innocent until proven guilty. And you're shifting the burden of proof to the defendant is something that that is completely antithetical to the New Hampshire way, way the judicial system should work and across the country. So, uh, you know, that alone to me is is very distasteful uh, tack on the, the part of uh, an already backlogged judicial system. You're adding misdemeanors to, uh, to, to this list of crimes, which means there will be people who are charged with a crime, who are accused of a crime and, uh, that are being held pre-trial for a crime that if convicted, they would not be held in prison for. So the, the punishment pre-trial will be worse than the punishment if convicted. Um, and, and all of that combines to, to co costing the, ju the justice system at least $3 million on top of their existing budget. Uh, they'd have to hire new judges, new staff. 
the prisons, uh, the jails presumably would have to hire new staff uh, since, as Buzz mentioned, they've we've decreased the prison, po the jail populations across the state. And, and this would uh, certainly exacerbate it uh, quite a bit, I, I would guess, at least to pre bail reform levels. It's going to have uh, just to pick up on. Well, Rob. hold on. We're going to go to a quick break and we'll come. We'll continue right on this conversation for sure. We're talking with Ross Conley, Deputy State Director for Americans for Prosperity, New Hampshire, as well as professor of UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. Buzz sure. You listen to New England Taken to BKXL. I'm your host, AJ Kirsten. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to the New England Take WKXL, 1450 AM, 103.9 FM Concord, 101.9 FM Con Manchester, and nhtalkradio.com. I'm your host, AJ Kirstead. Continuing our conversation with Ross Connolly, Deputy State Director for Americans for Prosperity in New Hampshire, and Professor Buzz Sher of UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law and member of the Portsmouth, New Hampshire Police Commission. We're continuing our conversation on bail reform in New Hampshire and an upcoming bill that's going to be in front of the state legislature next week on getting on altering how that works and anti-bail reform laws, Buzz has put it. Um, so we're we're in the middle of discussing the uh, the real a lot of it seems unconstitutional ways they want to handle and rework the way the bail system works. So, Buzz, back to you. Yeah, let me um, let me follow up on what Ross was saying about cost. Uh, I think he's right. It's going to cost <clears throat> jails, individual jails, more money if there's going to be a lot more people in jail, which I predict there will be. Uh, and that's a that's a cost to the county. It's not a cost to the state. That's a put aside uh, the three million dollars that that Ross talked about a cost to the state. Counties are going to uh, have a have to increase their uh, Department of Corrections budgets to deal with this hiring new people, et cetera. Uh, so it's a cost to the county. You know, it costs uh, the general wisdom is it costs somewhere around. $30,000, thirty dollars to $33,000, depending, um, to hold somebody in jail for a year, jail or prison for a year. Uh, so, you know, there's estimates on a daily basis, it costs about 100 to $150 a day to hold an individual. So there's a substantial incarceration cost for holding people who haven't been proven guilty yet uh, in jail until they get the trial where it's determined whether they're guilty. Uh, so there's that cost. A representative from the court system, you know, testified at, during a work session in front of the House uh, Criminal Justice and Public Safety Committee. Uh, exactly what Ross said. This isn't just me or Ross making up numbers. They testified they would have they would have so many more hearings, five, somewhere around five thousand more hearings than they currently have in an already overwhelmed by COVID uh, pandemic uh, system, they would have 5,000 more hearings. They would need to hire five to six more judges and support staff in the clerk's offices at a cost of somewhere between two and three million, probably closer to $3 million. That hasn't been budgeted. The problem, the political problem here is very simple. There's a coalition of people with original bail reform from across the political and criminal justice spectrum. On each of the bail commissioners, bail commissions, there was representatives from all the stakeholders, prosecutors, superintendents, you know, police, et cetera. This bill 
came from the New Hampshire Police Chiefs Association who went to Jeb Bradley and said, we want to do this. And that bill was filed. Uh, represent, uh, Senator Bradley filed the bill. There was no consultation with anyone else in the criminal justice system, not the attorney general's office, not the court system, not not, not the public defender system. It was an effort, a solo effort by one stakeholder to get what they want and to prey on everybody's outsized, often fear of public safety, lack of public safety. Understanding, of course, that our crime rate has gone down from 2018 to 2020. So what this legislation represents, in addition to all the problems we've already discussed, is a failure in the legislative system. You know, there was no, this isn't, this bill is not a product of all the stakeholders. This is a product of one stakeholder. This seems like yet another example of um, nationalization of subjects that are a lot more state driven and drives me completely bananas. You see, uh, like, like especially with this specifically, this is like the perfect example with regards to that, in my opinion, because the, you see a lot of the worst case scenarios out there. Like the biggest example of late specific with this would be the Wakusha, Wisconsin massacre. This guy drove was out. Uh, he didn't get cash bail, so they let him go. The judge, for whatever crazy reason, didn't throw him uh, behind bars waiting for his trial, even though he was a sex offender and a violent offender. Um, I, this doesn't seem to be happening in new hampshire well there's always examples and if you listen to the police chiefs testify at the hearings on sb 92 there's always examples that scare people there, right. and there always will be you cannot design a perfect system that does everything but you know there's just no actual hard data that more dangerous people are being released. As one superintendent told me uh, several years ago during the first bail commission meeting, set of meetings, uh, he said, I asked him, you know, what do you, what do you see as the effect? And he said, well, it used to be that only poor dangerous people got held pre-trial <laughs> as well as poor people who weren't dangerous. Now, Poor people who are not dangerous don't get it held. Poor people who are dangerous get held. And rich people who are dangerous get held. It wasn't the case under the yeah. old bail statute that rich people who were dangerous got held because they could pay 50000 100000 bucks bail. So, um, you know, I, I freely uh, admit that there's always going to be examples that make us feel bad, that the judge made a mistake in letting somebody out, either because the police didn't give the prosecutor enough information to show that this person was dangerous, or the prosecutor screwed it up uh, and didn't make a good showing, or for what are the judge just made a bad decision. There's always going to be a few of those cases out there. Um, but we can't design a system around anecdote. Right. We've got to design it about uh, around what's the right thing to do in the broadest sense for society, considering all the stakeholders. Ross, can you touch on, especially for your organization, uh, the, the national lens when it comes to this, and if other states might have examples supporting the, what's happening in New Hampshire also? Yeah, I, I think this is, to Buzz's point, a, a reaction from you know national sort of 
whether it's fear mongering or mistakes in some localities that are not in New Hampshire, uh, you know, decriminalizing certain types of, of, of violent crimes or, or, or theft or something in, in, in certain cities across America that gets people riled up and uh, you're able to create a narrative around that. But that I, I just think the few stories you can point to in New Hampshire, those are, are outliers uh, as far as I, I can see. As Buzz pointed out, we've seen a decrease in crime across the board. Uh, not an increase. Uh, I, I, so I, I am trying to see how this bill would at all fix any of those problems. I, I, I think this is a solution in search of a problem that doesn't do much of anything except you're casting a net so wide, <laughs> you're you're creating collateral consequences across communities in New Hampshire. You know, what is the cost of somebody losing their job because they were held pretrial or, uh, you know, we, we haven't even talked about if they fail to appear, the consequences of failing to appear, which we all know across the country, the most common reasons for fa uh, failure to appear to a, a hearing is, is transportation issues, employment issues or child care issues. So, uh, you know, I, I don't see how SB 92 does any positive good to stop uh, some of those outlying stories that we see. Instead, I, I, I see it creating much more exacerbated problems from from violating due process rights to violating constitutional rights, and then the the consequences of of the action of of holding people pretrial. Yeah, and something we've we've kind of glossed over a little bit in this is the New Hampshire public defender system. They must be. Uh, not happy with the fact this might be going up because we talked about the financial burden on the state, which uh, the public defender receives some state funds, if I'm not mistaken. In addition to they're completely funded by funds. yeah, they're completely funded by state funds, um, and they're already in a, uh, a a staffing crisis as it is yeah. because of COVID, and the last thing they need is five thousand more hearings where a defendant is entitled to counsel. Um, and, uh, it, it's, um, you know, it's, it's a nightmare for them too, uh, to have that many more hearings to, to pick up on, on something that Ross was talking about. Another feature of the bill that he mentioned is it, it, it makes it, if you fail to appear for a misdemeanor or a felony, if you fail to appear for a misdemeanor, uh, it this bill makes it much, much, much more likely that you're going to be held pretrial, whatever the misdemeanor. Um, and um, as Ross said, you know, I, I can't tell you the number of circuit court or district court judges in New Hampshire I've talked to that have said, you know, I know they, what these failures to appear are about. A person's got a job and his boss won't give him time off to come out to court or he doesn't want to tell his boss he has a court date. Um, or uh, they've lost their license for one reason or another. And they, they particularly in rural areas, they can't get to court. Uh, or they've got childcare issues and they can't bring the whole family to court. And all these circuit court judges know that it's not like these people who are failing to appear are absconding from the jurisdiction, you know, that they're going to California because they're charged with, they don't want to stand up and be held accountable for a criminal trespass 
um, or something like that. Uh, they, they, and, and the police departments and the sheriff's office, they know where to go and find these people who don't show up. And they, they go to their house or they go to wherever and there they are. And, they, you know, and so but this this puts a heavy burden on people who have a failure to appear of any kind for any reason without an explanation to show that uh, they shouldn't be held in jail pretrial. Again, you know, the way to cure people who, uh, driving without a license is to put them in jail forever, you know, Um that sometimes feels like the goal of this legislation. So if we just jail everybody, then we won't have any more problems. Though there's also that must have a lot of constitutional implications for doing something like this. I mean, if this got through as it currently is written, could this be hitting the federal court circuit? Uh, it'll, in the first instance, it'll hit the uh, state court circuit. Uh, um, you know, one of the issues is. Shifting the burden at that, you know, second part of the hearing that I talked about to the defendant, uh, I think has problems under uh, a U.S. Supreme Court case, uh, U.S. versus Salerno is the name of it for anyone interested, where it says if you're going to hold somebody without bail, it involves the federal bail statute. If you're going to hold somebody without bail, you have to establish through a due process proceeding where they have counsel and witnesses are called that they're dangerous by clear and convincing evidence that that second part of the hearing where the there's a presumption that they're dangerous based on what they're charged with and the judge's earlier finding on just what the prosecutor said that is no longer the case and i think it's a there's a very interesting constitutional challenge um, and there's also some difficulty not having some potential constitutional issues with not having somebody see a bail commissioner right after they're arrested, that them sitting in jail for, you know, 36 hours plus weekends or holidays uh, without even seeing the bail commissioner. That uh, may well also, both under the state constitution, where it says part one, article 15 says you can't be held. Uh, without, you know, being notified of what you're charged with, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there are, I think, significant constitutional problems uh, with this. Yeah, I feel like we kind of I kind of glossed over it at the very beginning. But right now, with the current way the bail is handled, uh, if you are considered to be someone violent or they think you're just gonna go out there and do horrible things after you you're after you've been arrested they're just gonna hold you correct right now yeah they're gonna uh you'll see a bail commission as soon as you're arrested everybody who's arrested you know you, you'll see uh, uh, unless there's gonna be a pr bail but but everybody who's arrested will see a bail commissioner uh who makes a preliminary decision about whether they're going to be held or not using the same statute uh and then if they're held via the bail commissioner um then they get a hearing you know within usually within 24 hours uh if not less um depending on holidays and weekends uh in front of a a, a superior court or a circuit court judge so um you get you get more process under the old statute if you're charged with one of these 13 crimes uh you get less process. Uh, the goal is to see if we can hold more people in jail. 
instead uh, and do it by slotting them into one of 13 crimes rather than doing it the way the current statute does, which is let's leave it up to a judge. The prosecutor gets to make his presentation with witnesses. The defense lawyer gets to make their presentation and let's have them make their both their arguments. And then the judge, a very experienced judge always can make the decision. I mean, that's that's the way it's worked. And uh, we're we're making that less and less the way it's worked. Yeah, this bill essentially it really removes the judicial discretion of what, what they you know, a judge has a lot of experience in dealing with cases, they should be able to to sort of dive through and uh, decide whether somebody should be held or not. I I, I think this takes that out of their hand, hands quite a bit that uh, I, I, I don't think will be very successful in stopping the future crimes. I mean, if yeah, any, me, oh, go ahead. Yep. Let me give you a really controversial example. Mm-hmm. Kyle Rittenhouse, Uh, he was uh, charged with homicide um, and eventually he made bail, right? Uh, He didn't commit any crimes. You know, there's some argument that he violated his conditions of his bail, but uh, he wasn't, he had a hearing in front of the judge. But he didn't commit any crimes. He was charged with a serious, arguably a very dangerous, violent crime. He was out on bail all the way till trial. And he was acquitted. Now, whatever one thinks, and AJ, you and I have gone around on uh, on that case, but whatever one thinks about the Rittenhouse verdict, uh, he did not commit any crimes while he was out on bail. And that's the, that's the, what happens the huge majority of time. Um, End up messing up the debate on whether he should have been held or not, because everyone was freaking out at the legal system that, that for giving him bail versus not giving him bail and throw him back in prison because he's uh, loud mouthing at some bar. <laughs> yeah, he was, you know, he was a, uh, He's a kid. <laughs> he pro- he, provo- he provoked a uh, political debate. Yes, he did. Uh, and as always the case, we like to use the criminal justice system to cure things that it's not designed to cure, like political discussions, like gun rights, like mental illness, like homelessness. I mean, that's, you know, that it's always been the criminal justice system that we try and use to cure these societal problems. And it, it it's not made to do that, but it always get and the system gets messed up when we try and use it to do that. And that's exactly what SB 92, the bill we're talking about. It's just another example of that. All right. And that's what I, I, I fear using, you know, a law like this, uh, localities using a law like this to to go about, you know, solving their homeless issue, like like Buzz said, or solving solving mental health issues. You know, I, I, it's not going to solve anything, but it will hide the problem. And, and that's that's what I'm concerned about. Some of the consequences of if this bill were to, were to become law. So we got one minute left here on this segment. Uh, if people want to e- to support either you in in uh, 
keeping the existing bail set up as is or speak out against uh, the, the bill that's being proposed on uh, January 5th, what should they do? Call their representatives, uh, their local representative, and uh, their, their phone numbers are easily accessible uh, on the uh, New Hampshire General Court website. Uh, you just go to uh, the House of Representatives and find your representative and and there'll be a phone number and an email address and let them know that you are you are not in support of SB 92. So it's gencourt.state.nh.us if anyone's looking for that. And if you're interested, we, we can you can visit americansforprosperity.org. Go to the action center at the top and we have an easy to fill out form that will automatically send a letter of opposition to SB 92 right to your representatives. Professor of Law Buzz Sher from UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law and Portsmouth, New Hampshire Police Commission. Rose Connolly, Deputy State Director for Americans for Prosperity for New Hampshire. Thank you so much for joining the show today. Uh, we're going to be taking a quick break. We'll be right back after this. You'll have to listen to the New England Take on WKXL. Welcome back to the New England Take and WKXL. I'm your host, AJ Kierstead. Great conversation with Buzz Schur, professor of law at UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law, member of the Ports New Hampshire Police Commission, and Ross Connolly, who's still with me right here for this last short segment. He's the Deputy State Director for Americans for Prosperity for New Hampshire. Uh, so just in general, what is the what does Americans for Prosperity do? So we're a large uh really grassroots advocacy group. We're, we're across the country, 35 state chapters. Uh, our New Hampshire state chapter started in 2008. And what we really focus on doing is breaking barriers within the institution of government that we view are holding Granite Staters back from reaching their full potential. We, we think people should be able to easily pursue their dreams, whether that's going into a field that may require an occupational license or uh, you know things, businesses being taxed too much or in the criminal justice system, which is is one of the biggest offenders of, of uh, holding people back uh, long term, whether it's through uh, prison sentences or collateral consequences through our, our cannabis decriminalization. Uh, all of these things hold people back from being able to to pursue their American dream. So so big picture. I mean, when you look at New Hampshire versus other states, I mean, how close is New Hampshire to your what you're looking to get? I think we, we, we've made some great progress. Uh, so I handle our, our criminal justice portfolio here, here in New Hampshire. And, uh, you know, I've seen a lot of progress over the past few years, whether that's bail reform, uh, cannabis decriminalization, uh, and, and uh, just a, a, a smarter look at crime. Now there are things like SB 92 that try to, try to roll back the progress. But uh, New Hampshire is moving in the right direction. We're, we're lagging behind some of our neighbors in, in, in some areas. We, we are uh, advocating New Hampshire to become a legal cannabis state, uh, but obviously we're stuck on an island here in, in, of prohibition. Uh, but I, I do see, uh, you know, in the next coming years, just more and more progress and, and good things happening on, on the side of reforming our, our criminal justice system. The, the libertarian nation of New Hampshire must be a little uh, uh, blessing and a curse because New Hampshire doesn't want to make things change very often, but they also don't want the government to be involved in too much. So it must be uh, an interesting battle when it comes to uh, legislation. 
Yeah, I, I might be biased. I, I'm a native Granite Stater. I was born and raised in Hollis, but I, I, I think the New Hampshire system of government is, is the best form of government. It's the most accountable to the people uh, with a 400 member legislature, uh, one of the least powerful governors in the country with our executive council. Uh, and every Granite Stater has, uh, can easily contact their representative, influence how, what legislation makes its way through Concord. And, you know, parts of the part of the consequence of that is it's very difficult to get bills done. Sometimes it takes uh, a lot of time. You have to build coalitions and and uh, really get the support you need. But uh, I, I do think it's it's the best form uh, because it should be hard to, to get uh, a lot of things done. Um, and you should be be forced to get a consensus across parties. Um, and, and, and that's that's the way New Hampshire operates. And I, I think it's it, it works, you know, uh, when it works and when, when it doesn't work for you, you're mad, but it still works. Give the quick plug for Americans for Prosperity. Yeah, please visit uh, AmericansforProsperity.org to learn more about uh, about our organization. And you can go to a drop down menu, go to New Hampshire, see what issues we work on. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, you can go to our action center where you can take direct grassroots action to influence your representatives, your senators, the governor uh, to, to make change both in New Hampshire and nationally down in Washington. Thanks so much for joining me, Ross. Thanks, AJ. Deputy Director Ross uh, Connolly of the of Americans for Prosperity for New Hampshire. Uh, it was a great conversation today. Definitely be sure to check out the full podcast version of the show at nhtalkradio.com. We also broadcast Fridays at 6 p.m. as well as WKXL in the morning, Tuesdays in the 6 a.m. hour. This has been the New England Take on WKXL.